And part of what helps with that too is just that now I know I'm not alone. So many women, you know, this is the whole Me Too movement and all that. Like, there's so many people who have experienced these same things and we just shut up about it. We got mm-hmm. small and quiet and made ourselves small for whatever reason. And um, so I don't feel alone at all. And I, I actually am so grateful for this opportunity to share it all. Hi there. Welcome to the Real Joy Recovery Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Waterman, confidence coach, wellness writer, and mental health advocate. Join me each week for trauma-informed conversations around the intersections of addiction, mental health, and adverse experiences, and how we can overcome the pain of our past. Real Joy Recovery is where thought leaders in lifestyle medicine, energy psychology, mindfulness, neuroscience, and epigenetics gather to provide guidance on the areas we all need most. Welcome to the place where it's safe to face your trauma, find your joy, and unlock the real you. Let's dive in. I am so excited about my guest today. Renee Schulz Jacobson graduated with a bachelor's degree from Hobart and William Smith Colleges and a master's degree from the University of Buffalo. Eight years after suffering an iatrogenic brain injury, Renee's brain has mostly healed. Today, she is an independent artist whose paintings hang in private collections throughout the world. In addition to making and selling her artwork, it has become her mission to educate the public about the dangers associated with long-term psychiatric drug use. A certified recovery peer advocate, she offers emotional support to people suffering through the protracted benzodiazepine and SSRI withdrawal syndrome. Her home and studio are located in Rochester, New York. I'm so excited to introduce you to Renee. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Real Joy Recovery Podcast. I am so excited for our guest today. Renee Schulz Jacobson is an artist and the author of Psychiatrized, Waking Up After a Decade of Bad Medicine. Welcome to the show, Renee. Hi, Michelle. I'm so glad to have been asked to do this with you. Thank you. It's such a delight to share this space with you right now. And I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I am Renee Schulz Jacobson. For 20 years, I was actually an English teacher, an English educator. Then I had an abrupt disruption to that role. And now I am a full-time independent artist. I teach art classes. I'm one of those weirdos in the white tent at art festivals. I kind of sell at festivals. I have a website and I just, uh, during the COVID quarantine, I became a published author with my book, Psychiatrized. So that's what I got going on. That's so awesome. And that's what I'd love to dive into today. Your story is so powerful, Renee, and it really embodies the mission of this podcast, which is helping people recover from the pain of their past to reclaim their joy and to unlock the real you. And that is just, my heart is just gushing with respect and honor and just gratitude to share this time with you and to share your story with my listeners. So welcome to the show. I'd love to dive into your story in chapter one. It's called Cheated. And in a synopsis, it's really about a birth trauma. And so I'd love for you to just start there. Sure. 
So I know the book sort of starts with a birth trauma and we can start there, but I guess I would just like to say that prior, you know, we all have trauma in our lives and I would like to just have people know that while my book starts with the birth trauma, there was some significant trauma that I had prior to the age of 17. And I didn't really ever realize how much there was until retroactively. So before we talked about the birth trauma, let me just say that before I was 17 years old, I actually had you know a mom who was not... Um, super attentive when I was young. She was actually quite abusive when I was, when I was young, she would belittle me and hit me and call me names and also lock me in my room for extended periods of time. So that's a, a first really important thing to understand. Second of all, I lived through a home invasion So people coming into the house, which was terrifying. I also, you know, as a woman in America during growing up in the seventies and eighties, there was a fair amount of sexual harassment and trauma that I was sort of expected to just accept as normal. And then I was also part of a religious community, um, a kind of conservadox Jewish background where there were very small, narrow ideas about what a woman could be and do. And that specifically meant being a wife and a mother, or maybe you could have a job as a teacher or a secretary or, you know, or a nurse, but only until you found your husband and had, you know, did your real work. And so that actually, I didn't, you know, looking back at it now, I realized that was something that kind of impacted me and kept my life kind of small. And then I was raped when I was 17 by somebody that I knew and loved actually very much. And I, so, so when you want to start at the birth story, I guess I feel like, yes, the the birth story was the tipping point. That Mm -hmm. is where this all bubbled over because I can track back now that I picked my partner because of all the things that had happened to me previously. And we weren't necessarily a great match. And we didn't even really know that about each other, but it all bubbled out at the birth story. So I'm happy to, to start yeah. with there. Renee, I'd love, to, I'd love to just for, for a moment here, I'd love to just like be with some compassion for the courage it takes to share those parts of your story. And I, I would agree. I'm not a trauma expert, but I know enough to know that um, these various traumas, capital T and lowercase T, these adverse childhood experiences that you're describing, the way that, you know, we're not seen and heard and known in our own family systems and other systems of care in our faith communities, all the ways that, you know, there are attacks on our body, physically, emotionally, spiritually, you know, the body does keep the score. And so I really appreciate you owning your own story and letting the listeners know where this, where this all started. And that's really what the message is, is to help people really come home to themselves. And some of that is really understanding what happened to us and stop looking through the lens of what's wrong with us. Yes, absolutely. And I would just add, the other thing is that the, the thing about trauma is that people think that trauma is big stuff. It has to be cataclysmic. Like you lived through an earthquake or a fire or something and trauma can be, and it was in my case as well, that 
you know, I grew up with a lot of messaging that I wasn't smart. You know, I just wasn't mm. smart. Uh, I was average. It's not true at all. I just was in, surrounded by a lot of really smart people that I'm, I'm very smart and I know it now. And, but that wasn't the story in my life. And so trauma can be, you know, being bullied. It can yeah. be, you know, it doesn't have to mean that there, you know, you lived through a, a, a devastation, you know, yeah. it can be losing a job. It's wherever you're, wherever, it's your, what you're, like you said, it's where your body how your body responds to these stimuli. Mine is very responsive, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know we both really admire Gabor Mate's work. And, you know, he was recently featured in a documentary, uh, The Wisdom of Trauma, which I, I don't know if you saw that, but it, it was yeah. profound. And, and one of the things he said, especially, I think it applies to all trauma, but most especially for these childhood wounds, is that it's not just about what happens to us. It's what happens inside of us as a result of what happens to us. And when he said that, I was like, oh yeah, it's the things that happen to us. And when it happens inside our own families, our faith communities or in our communities, and we don't feel like we can talk about it. And we're, we have those secrets inside of us, you know, that starts to fester a shame and it starts to inform how we think about ourselves and how we show up in our, in our lives. And how we really, you know, it's not just, yes, it's what happens in our body, but it's what we start believing about ourselves. Yeah. And we carry it with us and can get re-triggered and, and it's all about, you know, gaining the self-awareness then about like what's upsetting us. And I sometimes talk about it as like having a salad filled with like stuff that you love, but also some stuff that you absolutely can't stand. And so every once in a while you might hit like a pepper or something that you really don't like and you get it and it's like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to eat that part, you know? And so like having to sift through and you can be agitated or become, become triggered and, and not, you know, realize it. So yes, we we continue to carry it until you, you know, well, always really, but it's really about learning, learning about the, what what things you can tolerate and which things you can't. So, yeah. Yeah. So with, so with the adverse childhood experiences and then, you know, other experiences in, in, in your um, teenage years and young adulthood, And then what you said earlier in the conversations was this pivotal point after the birth trauma that really, there might not have been conscious awareness at the time, because what we're talking about now is a retrospective look at what happened and all the healing that you've gone through to be able to be self-aware about all this connection. But let's, if it would be okay, let's dive into psychiatrized and talk about, you don't want to do the, you don't want to talk me to want me to talk about the birth. Sorry. Oh no, I totally do. Yeah. Which is in your book. Let's talk talk about the the origin story that, right. Yeah. This is like how you, so let's go there. Okay. So I was pregnant in 1999 with my one and only child, my son. And it was a very difficult pregnancy from the conception. Immediately, I was just very, very nauseous. I mean, you know, losing weight during the first three months of the pregnancy, which isn't no necessarily unheard of where people have, you know, horrible uh, nausea, but it went on and on and on to the point where, and I was working as a teacher at the time. And I was just throwing up in class, you know, in the morning, my poor students. So around the fifth month, I, I, it was so debilitating. It just was all day long and it wasn't stopping. And so I went to see my doctor and he said, we need to put you on bed rest. So I was on bed rest for my fifth month um, through my sixth month. So about, about six weeks there, I was on bed rest. 
And then it kind of leveled out a little. And then I returned to school. And in July, which was in my eighth month of pregnancy, I actually had an abruption. Mm -hmm. And so I was bleeding out. And my doctor at that point, we went to the hospital and he said, you, that's it. You're on bed rest for the rest of the time. So I now had two months, you know, two months were previously bed rest. And now I'm two more months, you know, bed rest. And I felt very alone and very, you know, the world goes on without you. Right. You know, I was, I was all by myself in my room. My husband was working and I didn't have guests, you know, I was just by myself watching television. And on the day that I went into labor, we went to the hospital and I just was, it was forever. It was taking forever. And finally, when it was, you know, things sort of stalled out and my doctor called for us to have, for me to have a, what do you call that? A, an epidural. Okay. An epidural. And I was not able to, on my, on my chart, I was not able to have an epidural because there was a suspected lidocaine allergy, which is what mm-hmm. they have to give you before yeah. they can give you an epidural. And this was the first moment they were discussing it when I was in hard labor. The baby was in the weird position, not progressing. And she sort of said, oh my God, we got to get you into surgery. We got to get this baby out of here. So I was rushed into surgery and, you know, put under. And while I was under, I had what can only be considered a near-death experience. Mm. I had a really weird experience of, you know, people sometimes talk about when they have an NDE, they saw the light, they saw all their loved ones surrounding them. And it's like this wonderful, warm, fuzzy experience. That was not my experience. Mm. I saw evil, evil demons sort of swirling around me. I saw myself hovering up over my body. I saw the top of my doctor's bonnet. And then I felt like I was on a conveyor belt that was going through almost like a tunnel, a dark tunnel. And I was really being attacked by these spirits. And I felt like there was a chipper that I was going through. And I kind of felt myself going through this chipper and it started at my feet and it was coming up. And I, I just remember holding onto what almost like an MRI machine, you know, I was like holding onto the side of this thing that felt like a machine. And I had this feeling that, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm never going to be a mother. I'm never going to get to take care of this baby that I wanted so bad that I tried so hard to, to get here. Mm-hmm. And, and I just remember sort of just having that moment of absolute terror. And the next thing I knew it was like, shoot. And I opened my eyes and I was in a room and it was dark and I was alone Mm -hmm. and my arms were strapped to two boards. There were wires going into me, you know, they were intravenous something, you know, whatever they were doing. Mm -hmm. And I woke up and I said, am I dead? And a cute little nurse popped her head out and she had a Southern accent. And she's like, well, you're not dead at all. No, you know, you're in the hospital. And I didn't know if my son was alive. I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know how much time had elapsed, but my body felt like I had been hit by a truck Mm -hmm. and, and my husband wasn't there. I felt Mm -hmm. really alone and scared and she left and then she left me she said I'll go find your I'll go find your husband she walked Mm -hmm. out and left me in this room and I I was terrified and I don't know shortly thereafter he emerged and he would not come toward me 
And this was really hard. He just stood in the doorway and just kind of looked. And the nurse actually had to escort him into my side. And when he came in, he basically explained that our son had stopped breathing three times, that he had been intubated and resuscitated, and that I had died on the table and I had been intubated and resuscitated and that he was so very tired because he had been running back and forth between the NICU, the newborn intensive care unit and my ICU, which were on different floors and back and forth. And he said, I'm just exhausted. And I asked him if he would come lay down with me in the bed. And I kind of prompted him to, I kind of tried to scoot over with despite all my weird wires and everything. And I said, you know, come, come sit with me. And he said, nah, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna sit in this end of the bed here. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember feeling like really disconnected and I, it, you know, I don't know what that is, but to me, it felt something primal, like as a child mm-hmm. having a scary dream or, you know, running into my parents' room for some reassurance that it's okay. It was a dream or it was a bad thing and you're okay. And I just, it was a bad, I felt bad. My body felt bad. And then my husband wasn't somehow giving me this, this basic need, helping me to refill this basic need. And it just kind of didn't get better from there. Yeah. I mean, we're social creatures, right? I mean, we really are. And we are wired for connection. And so as you share your story so beautifully and vulnerably, and I don't mean beautiful because it doesn't sound beautiful, but the beauty is your willingness to be vulnerable and to let people in. This really reminds me of what Gabor Mate says about trauma isn't necessarily only what happened to you because this birth trauma sounds pretty intense for anybody to listen to, right? This is a lot that your body and your soul and your mind went through with your baby and your baby too, but it's what happens inside of you as a result of that. And what you needed, what you said is you felt so alone you felt so alone that you woke up, you know, wondering what happened to me. The nurse assures you that you're not dead. You yeah. Know where your husband is. And then she goes to get your husband and you're left with this aloneness. And when you ask for connection, you don't get it. Yeah, it was denied. And I would also add my husband's family is a very medical family. So even mm-hmm. now I get a little choked up when you acknowledge that that was a lot to go through mm-hmm. because frankly, He's from a family of medical people and they all sort of made me feel like it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, they see these things all the time. They've been through medical. His mother has like a very nursing. She's not a nurse, but she's got that medical sensibility. His brother's a doctor. You know, there's a lot of that. And Mm -hmm. Everyone sort of was used to this kind of stuff and they just, or either that, or they just couldn't imagine it and empathize. And honestly, their attitudes was more like, you're fine. The baby's here now. Let's focus on, you know, the baby. And it's just so wonderful that you're alive. And that was the story over and over was that, but you're here and you're fine and you're alive. And so one of the things I said in the book was that somehow just being alive, everyone seemed to think that was enough. Yeah. Like just, just that I was breathing and that my body was functioning. It, it, I looked okay, but you know, my, I had lost 75% of my blood in childbirth. There were discussions of whether or not I should be transfused. And my husband, my ex-husband, who is a doctor, he said he was, you know, they were worried 
there are all these discussions around me, you know, around me. And people were worried that I was going to have, could, could get HIV or that hep C, you know, from having a transfusion. And so it was decided really without me, you know, suddenly this is the first time in my life that uh, I got medicalized. Other people were making decisions about me, but I was okay with it because I just felt overwhelmed by it all. But it really was the beginning of me starting to give away my power, which I really gave away later. But this was the beginning because I just was so afraid and I kept asking for what I needed and I wasn't getting it. Yeah. Isn't that, it's just interesting that, I mean, what you're really describing so earlier in the conversation, we were talking about these adverse childhood experiences And then you have this birth trauma, which is really medical trauma. And it's like trauma on top of trauma, because like what your body went through is of itself. It can be a trauma depending on how those experiences get, get supported and honored and metabolized. Yes. Yes. And it reproduces itself. So now that I, you know, again, we'll look back at it after, but when I think about the rape, it was the same pattern where I went to people that I trusted and told them I wasn't okay. And I got blamed and shamed and all those stereotypical things. Why were you out there? What were you doing? What were you wearing? You must've done something. Did you even try to scream? You know, all those kinds of things. And when I actually even told my friends afterwards, they were super confused because they knew that I had really been in love with this person. And when I tried to tell them it wasn't a good experience at all and that I hadn't wanted to and, and all those kinds of things, they were like, oh, it's so cute. You, you know, you guys, you guys had sex and stuff. And, and it was like, oh, yeah, yeah but it, I'm telling you, it wasn't good. You know, it didn't feel good. It felt scary and bad. So it reproduced that same yeah feeling in me of like not being heard, not being seen, not being validated. Yeah. Not being believed, not being believed. And I carried it for decades, for decades, because that happened when I was 17 and I had my child. I don't know. I'm, I'd have to go back and think, figure that out. He's 22. (laughs) Wow. I I just want to just come back to another moment of, of, of compassion for you again, that, um, when we retell our stories, sometimes, even though we've done a ton of work, it's, it's just really honoring you as you're sharing. Thank you so much for the courage to share your story. And I want to make sure in this moment that you feel seen and heard and known and believed. I do. Thank you. In this moment. And part of what helps with that too, is just that now I know I'm not alone. So many, you know, this is the whole me too movement and all that. Like there's so many people who have experienced these same things and we just shut up about it. We got Mm -hmm. small and quiet and made ourselves small for whatever reason. And um, so I don't feel alone at all. And I I actually am so grateful for this opportunity to share it all. You know, I really am. Thank you. Good. Okay. So I'm so glad that you feel that way. Cause that's, that's, that's my whole hope is that you, that you felt that way. It's so good. So, I mean, we literally could have this whole conversation be only about this part of your story, but I would really like to go further through the book is, you know, at some point, Renee, with everything that you've shared, you started to experience insomnia. That's really what led you to the doctor's office and what led to you being prescribed a benzodiazepine. So let's talk a little bit about what happened with the insomnia. And like I just said, you went to a doctor's office and they offered you this solution. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So it was more than just insomnia, but that was my quote unquote presenting, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, presenting symptoms. So 
from the moment my son was born, I started to really have this insomnia and everyone normalized that all around me. You're a new mother. You know, of course you're not sleeping. Your body is programmed for this baby, but it seemed to me more than that. It seemed more. I couldn't sleep. People told me to sleep during the day. I just couldn't relax. And when I would try to sleep, I would hear voices. So some people would call this that I was having uh, auditory hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to the point where, you know, I would lie down at night and I was hearing voices and I would get up and think there were people in the house. I mean, it was that noisy. And I was Mm -hmm. waking up my husband and saying, do you hear that? You know, I hear things. Now I should actually go back just really fast. and, And this isn't actually anything I've ever discussed with anyone else, but I have always heard voices my whole life Mm -hmm. and I've always coincided with them and lived with them. Um, but they were never scary. I've, I've, you know, one of my earliest memories was, was five years old and hearing a voice. I was walking on a, um, a rocky ledge and there were bees all around me, you know, all around me. And my mother came out of the house and she started yelling at me. She's like, get off the, get off of the rocky ledge. Don't you see there's bees? you're going to fall or whatever. And she went in the house and I heard this voice and I did not experience it as coming from inside of me. I experienced it as an external voice. Mm -hmm. And it said, you know, you don't have to be afraid. You're not going Mm -hmm. to fall and you're not going to get stung. And I remember that. So my whole life, I've always had these guiding voices, but this felt different. This felt more ominous. Mm -hmm. And it really like tapped me back into that experience that I had on the operating table, this near death experience where suddenly this boy, these voices weren't guiding in me in a positive way. They were kind of scary. So Mm -hmm. I, I, after months and months and months of this, and and frankly, years, you know, it had been a a few years at this point, my husband said to me, you have got to get some help. You know, this has gone on long enough. You're not sleeping. You're hearing things. There's something wrong with you. You need to go get some help. So I went to Mm -hmm. see my primary care physician who basically, um, I'm I'm fast forwarding here, but he ultimately eventually got me seen by a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. and the psychiatrist after a 15 minute, uh, consult listened to me and said, well, this is really not hard. You have anxiety, depression, postpartum stuff, and you're bipolar, you know, and that happens sometimes to women, you know, their hormones shift. And it's obvious that you have a chemical imbalance that probably started during your, your delivery, you lost a lot of blood. And so it just, you know, I have the, I have a pill for you that can, can fix all of this. It's really not hard. And, um, you know, and so he, he starts writing out a script and he wrote out for, actually at that time, he wrote out for two medications. He wrote out for Lamictal, which -hmm. is supposed to be for bipolar disorder. And he also wrote out for, um, clonazepam. And I should just say prior to this, I had also gone to a primary, you know, I was on a quest. And so I had gone to a primary care physician. He had tried several antidepressants, which really revved me up as well. So I have not had great experiences with medication up until this point. In fact, I had been told I failed Celexa, I failed Prozac, and I failed Zoloft. Mm-hmm. So that's what got me to the psychiatrist in the first place. And now he's writing me for two more pills. And I was really nervous about it because I'm not someone who takes medication. I'm not someone who ever drank 
I'm not someone who even took Advil. I mean, even today, I don't even have it in my house. I don't have any of that stuff. And so this doctor really impressed upon me that, you know, this was a chemical imbalance and that I would benefit from, you know, that he had the solution and that it was tried and true. Mm -hmm. And I remember asking him, um, are there any side effects associated with this? And he said, absolutely not. It's tried and true. It's completely safe. And I'm writing you for a baby dose. Mm. And that was 0.5 milligrams of clonazepam. And for anyone who knows anything about clonazepam or clonopin, as it's called, it's 20 times stronger than Valium. So 0.5 milligrams of clonopin is like 10 milligrams. If I'm doing my math right, it's like between 10, you know, the conversion is always a little off, but about 10 milligrams of Valium. And that's what he was prescribing me to take every day. So for the people that can't see me at the time, I was about 119 pounds. Yeah. I'm not a big girl. And you would be prescribed five milligrams of Valium if you were going to have like a dental procedure where they might remove a tooth or something, but you would be prescribed that for one or two days, you know, one day kind of thing, pre-surgically, mm-hmm. you wouldn't you wouldn't be taking that in an ongoing manner every single day without any plan of stopping. So this was implied to me that this was the solution and that I would be taking this for life because I had a chemical imbalance. Yeah. When I hear people's stories about benzodiazepines, I mean, because the reality is that, you know, there's black box warnings on there now since 2020 through the FDA, but I mean, really, really those medications are not supposed to be taken more than two to four weeks. Right. Like hearing people getting parked, like your story being on a benzodiazepine for seven years. Right. I mean, so this was in 2004 and to your point, there were, that was not, that was not, they didn't have the same morning that it has now. And I would also just add the, the doctor that I went to see was not prescribing appropriately and we'll get there in a minute, but, um, but so yeah, that's it. You are not supposed to be taking these for long periods of time, but they are being prescribed that way. Here's the other thing before we dive, you know, further into your story. It's just so interesting to me that a doctor will spend 15 minutes with a patient and, you know, looking at the symptoms of what somebody's experiencing, you know, we're not looking at the person in the context of their whole life. One, we're not taking into context, not just trauma, but what's going on chemically in the body in terms of like postpartum, there's all sorts of hormones. I mean, nobody did any blood work. We don't know what's going on with your endocrine, your, you know, with your thyroid, like there's so many reasons. I did have all that. I will say I did have all that when I, I mean, I was just jumping along. I did go to my primary care who did all that. And we did determine that I, you know, needed to have some vitamin D because I was ridiculously low, but everything else checked out to be pretty, you know, medically in terms of their numbers, it all looked to be fine. But the reality is their, their spectrum that they have, their, their numbers are sometimes not, you know, it's not enough. Like there could be tiny little fluctuations that some people are really sensitive to that don't get picked up on their blood work, which I have learned later that, you know, some of us have tiny little fluctuations that we're just more sensitive to. And I think that's where I was. So I don't want to blame my doctor. He really did try to do things the best that he could, but, um, you know, I, I have a whole different way of handling my, my health. Here's, here's, I think, here's what I want to say, you know, and I don't think there that, um, 
it's just what I'm saying is reducing somebody down to a diagnosis. Like we're defining people by this quote unquote disorder. We're telling people that they've got brain chemical imbalances, that there's no peer reviewed science that ever can prove that there's any serotonergic, you know, um, imbalance in people, but that is the marketing narrative that is now accepted collectively in mainstream that this is just what's happening with people. And so take these medications and you're going to find balance when actually taking these medications is causing chemical imbalances in the brain. And look, if you're on medication, it's helping you, but that's great. This isn't anti-psychiatry, anti-medication. It's just that we need to make spaces to talk about other people's stories. And the fact of the matter is in your case, and many cases, including mine, people are not getting informed consent, getting on or off these drugs. That when you're told here, take Lamictal, which is a mood stabilizer, basically anti-seizure medication that's used for mood stabilization, you know, there's risks in that medication. Anytime we take a medication, you know, um, when you're prescribed a benzodiazepine for insomnia and anxiety, and then like being told like, oh yeah, this is a safe and effective drug. Informed consent is telling people exactly what could happen. The bottom line is you can become dependent on any of these drugs. Anybody can. Yeah, so I would just add that there definitely is an information gap that we're, I want to let people know that this was back in 2004 when I was first prescribed. And so I do feel like there are this next generation of doctors that are coming out is learning this stuff now, but there is an information gap. Any doctor who came out before basically 2020, unless they are, you know, they're not getting this information and they were taught a very specific way to prescribe that if you have this symptom, you take this drug, or if you have this symptom, you take this drug, or if you have this symptom, you take this combination of drugs. And that narrative, as you said, has been driven by big pharmaceutical companies because they have their hand in medical school training. And, you know, that's, it's a, it's a big problem. And the FDA has, you know, approved a lot of drugs that, you know, they, they're all in bed with the, the, the the drug makers. So just, you know, this, this narrative um, that has, has come out. I mean, I actually feel to some extent a little bit bad for some doctors because I do think most, many of the doctors went into this profession because they do want to help people and they do want to do right by people. But doctors typically um, are good students in high school, right? Like they get their accolades for being straight A students. That's how you get to get into medical school because you're a straight A student. They're not necessarily critical thinkers. They are good at regurgitating the information they are told. So when a drug company then comes or drug rep comes and says, here's our new thing, and it's got this statistic and that statistic and these outcomes, those doctors are really good at remembering that information. It's being reinforced their entire life. It's part of their medical school training. And they've been given accolades for having that superpower, you know, those yeah. skills. And so now they're being given this information and it's, um, they believe it. And so yeah. I think that they, that many of them believe in what they're doing. They, they believe and um, they didn't mean to do harm, but they are inadvertently causing a lot of harm. Well, and I think, you know, we're not going to dive into this deep today, but in terms of, you know, this burgeoning field of, of, you know, functional medicine, we do have doctors today that are really helping people get to root cause. Um, but in, in, in many cases, you know, these doctors only have what, like five, 10 minutes with their patients. And we're really looking at clusters of symptoms. And then we're medicating in many cases, symptoms, instead of helping people address what's really going on. And I would, I, I don't know exactly what was going on 
with you at the time. I'm not a medical doctor. I don't play one on TV. I'm sure it was more than one thing, right? I'm sure that it was, it, it, I'm sure that it's more than one thing. So yeah, I definitely think there was something physical going on, but more than physical was definitely, I felt a huge emotional deficit. I was mm-hmm. surrounded by people who basically said, pick yourself up by the bootstraps and focus on your child. And that is a beautiful thing. And I never want to make it sound like I didn't love my child. I love my son. I could eat him up, but there was no space in there for anyone to take care of me and what I needed. There was no space. I was the vessel that held the baby and now the baby's here. So get up sister and start taking care. And I really needed some love. I needed someone to show me how to take care of a baby. I needed someone to also love on me a little bit. And your point earlier that when you think about even uh, the best delivery, the best labor and delivery leaves a wound inside of you. You deliver a placenta, you know, a placenta. And if Mm -hmm. someone could see the, the size of that wound on the inside where the placenta had been attached, there would be a raw spot in there. Mm -hmm. And if you had that out on your arm or something or your leg and you were just had it open, people would be like, Oh my God, what happened to you? That's gross. But because it's on the inside, people can't see it. And so they assume that you are fine. And so I I think there was a lot of assuming that I was physically fine and I didn't take the time that I needed to rest. I immediately started to get up and and try and do, and then just the emotional piece was huge. And as I alluded to before, my husband and I really had a big rift at this point. And this is what I was saying. We were just not, it became very clear that he was just, he was dialed out. He felt it was his job to be the provider and Mm -hmm. to now there's a new baby and we got to make the money and he would go to work and he would do that all day long. And then he would go golfing or, or, you know, in the winter he would go biking or whatever it was. But my job was to stay at home with this baby. And I didn't have, I was very isolated. I didn't have a community and I really wanted this for my, my, my husband. And I would just add one other thing. This is a shout out to my parents. My parents had a narrative that I grew up with because my parents were thrilled to have children. And I was the first and they always, my whole life. In fact, to this day on my birthday, my parents always talk about how I was born and they went and saw me in the nursery and I was pushed up on my hands and looking around and they were so proud. They couldn't wait to take me home to their house. And then they put me on their bed and they both looked at me and then they laid down next to me and they marveled in the miracle of me. And I just thought that my husband and I would be doing that. I just thought we would have together time and this miracle time about our son And it just didn't happen. He's not wired that way. He wasn't wired for that kind of emotional intimacy. And I wanted that. And no matter how much I begged for it, frankly, he couldn't deliver. And it caused, it was hard for me. Yeah. And so it sounds like those moments where you felt the most alone in your life, like that in and of itself is like this thread of traumatic experience around feeling alone in your greatest time of need. And, you know, I don't know much about Kimberly Ann Johnson's work with the fourth trimester, but um, I'd love to have her on the podcast talking about that, just listening to your story and my story, which I won't get into, but, you know, I think every mom goes through uh, or every parent, I should say, okay, people, moms that are bringing the babies into the world go through this. There's just really 
at the time for me, and it sounds like at the time for you, there wasn't this like motherhood community that's helping us understand what's going on in our bodies and helping us go through it's uh, I don't know how to explain no, it's it, a void. even, though, even it's a though it's the birth of this amazing human being that you intended to bring in, there's grief there. There's so much emotion and then yeah. hormones on top of it. And then they don't come out with user manuals. Like, I don't care how many books you can read. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like being thrown in the deep end of the pool without any knowledge of yeah, and your own baby's cries right. sound so much louder than any other baby's cries you don't know what they you know yeah what, what do I do so to talk about your book so from this birth trauma and I know there's like many many more chapters before we get to this being psychiatrized so you're on this medication we both know that nobody's supposed to be on benzodiazepines more than two to four weeks. And here you find yourself years later. I mean, there was a lot that happened, um, that brought you to the place where you're like, oh my gosh, I I have to get off this medication. So let's talk a little bit about like, yeah, yeah. Between, so like between 20, 2004, when I started and 2011, when I stopped, um, at first the drug worked, you know, I took yeah. it and it was like, Oh, I can sleep. I woke up refreshed. I mean, that's the devil of this medication because I say that that's the devil. That's the deal with the devil because it really did work at first. Mm-hmm. But then over time, about nine months in, I started to develop all kinds of weird things. I, I, I got a lot of yeast infections and bladder infections and urinary tract infections. And then I had skin issues and I got this tightness in my throat and, um, I, oh my gosh, there were all kinds of weird things that were happening. Dizziness was a really big one for me that I would need to dizziness to the point that it felt like, I mean, I've never actually been a person who's drunk, but I I imagine that this is, must've been what I looked like. I'd have to hold onto the wall Mm. and it would be like an episode where the room was sort of spinning like a vertigo or the floor felt like I was walking on a trampoline or a pile of pillows. And I just was like, woo. And I'd have to wait for the spell, you know, the spell to pass. Mm -hmm. And I went to all kinds of specialists, you know, they were scoping me down and they were scoping me up and they were checking my throat and they were checking my vitamins and and went to neurologists and they wanted to give me more medications and in fact I was prescribed Topamax for migraines Mm. all kinds of stuff and um, I just started to kind of get worse and um, in 2011 I went to go uh, and fill you know go and see my psychiatrist to get my medication filled and I was greeted by a sign on the door that basically said Hello, patients. The doctor has uh, is no longer going to be practicing, and um, t- you know has decided to take an early leave, and you're going to need to go back to your primary physicians to find new providers. And the one thing I knew about this medication was that you really aren't supposed to miss a dose. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I did know that you were supposed to do that, and I was really low, and so I called my GP, and he was like, "Uh, you better get in here right away." <laughs> And to his credit, he sat me down and he said, I cannot write this for you for, I mean, I was so clueless. I, you know, he mm-hmm. says to me that you're, you know, you're, do you understand what's happening? Your doctor lost his license. And I went, what? And he said, yeah, for improper prescription practice. And this just speaks to how clueless I was because mm-hmm. I went, wow, that's awful. I wonder what he was doing. 
Well, Mm -hmm. he was doing what he was doing to me, which was he was writing for these prescriptions for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. He would send them in the mail. You're not supposed to do that. I mean, there was a lot of things. But anyway, so now I'm in this predicament and my doctor looks at me and says, "Um, you're going to need an addiction specialist. And I was like, an addiction specialist? What are you talking about? I never, I'm not addicted. I, I take this exactly as you're supposed to take it, never more. And he said, that's not how this stuff works. Your body has become chemically dependent on it. You can't just stop it. You'll, you know, you, you, you'll have a real problem. You can't just, I don't even think he said, he just said, you can't just stop it. I didn't even know what was involved. And I was like, oh, okay, well, where do I go now? And he's like, I'm going to refer you to a person. So he did, he referred me to a doctor who, who's local. She's terrific. And um, actually, I'll just give her the shout out. Her name is Dr. Patricia Halligan. And she actually has a podcast called The Hero's Journey. And um, she, when I met with her, she was the very first person who kind of, I was really nonchalant. You know, I was like, oh, can you just write for me? You know, wink, wink, you know, the way that, you, you know, he used to. And she's like, uh let me explain to you why you're here, sister. You need to get off of this stuff because it has all this profile. And she starts to tell me how it's been linked to Alzheimer's, how it's been linked to dementia and to all kinds of other problems. Mm -hmm. And so she develops a slow, a a plan for me to have a slow medically supervised taper. And I didn't really even know what that meant, but like, I didn't want to be on it, you know? And my son is now like 12, yeah. And he's not a baby anymore. And I'm thinking, well, if I needed this because he was a baby and he wasn't sleeping and, you know, he's waking up in the middle of the night or whatever, well, he's sleeping through the night now. He's a teenager. He's sleeping through half the day. I don't need yeah. this stuff. And so I was more than on board and, you know, I just went with what she thought. Yeah. You know, what I find fascinating is, is like this whole idea of, of it in your case, like addiction. So it must've been surprised for you to go, what do you mean? Because like you weren't, it wasn't necessarily like when I think of addiction, cause I'm 20 years sober, I think about, you know, so it's like this phenomenon of craving, right? So of course there's this depend, like there's this physical dependence on the, on whatever you're using to produce this effect, right? Like you need to have it. But for many people that are abusing medication and, or, you know, struggling with an addiction, it's literally, um, a phenomenon of craving, like despite having problems, they can't stop doing, whether it's the behavior or taking the drugs or drinking the alcohol or whatever. And so in your case, and in many cases, this is what I want to highlight is that people are taking medications as prescribed. They're not abusing them. And the truth is that the brain and central nervous system becomes dependent anyway. It doesn't need your permission. This, this is neuroadaptation. That's right. That's right. It changes your neuro. Yeah. Yeah, So this isn't you jonesing. I mean, yes, a lot of people get addicted to benzodiazepines and abuse the prescriptions or taking more than prescribed because they're looking for that desired effect. Right. Right. But in your particular case, and so many people, so many people, and I'm a coach now and I talk to a lot of people and this is so common from the moment I stopped this drug, I never wanted it again. I mean, it wasn't like I ever wanted it again. I never had that desire for, you know, obviously I wanted the insomnia to stop when that was happening. And, and I certainly, when I was going through the withdrawal, I wanted the insomnia stop, but I didn't have a craving for the drug. It wasn't like that. It was just, you just want the pain to stop, you know? So yeah, no, tons of people experience this in the same way. And it's a lot of very high functioning people because the people who are getting prescriptions for these medications have quote unquote, great insurance and insurance 
covers this for, you know, depending on your terms. I got my first prescription for $5. That was less expensive than a Big Mac meal. So, oh my gosh, that's a whole other topic, sister. So here, here you find yourself in this addiction specialist office and she's educating you on what happened to, you know, your brain and body and how, you know, your body has become, you know, your central nervous system, your brain has become dependent on these medications, these med the specific medication being on benzodiazepine that basically your body's become dependent on it. And, you know, these are the dangers of being on it for this long. And this is what could happen to you. If you continue to stay on it, we have to get you off. So now you're going through this tapering protocol, which is a lowering of, of the medication to give your body a chance to adjust to the small changes in hopes that you're not going to have what is we're going to talk about this iatrogenic injury, which is where somebody is injured from the doctor's care, whether it's um, the type of care that they prescribe or the medication that they take that in and of itself results in an injury, which is what happened to me and is what's happened to you with this benzodiazepine, which became withdrawal, which uh, I mean, taper that later became a very severe debilitating injury. situation that lasted for years for you and ended up becoming this discontinuation syndrome. So let's talk about, so you're tapering with this doctor. Is she a doctor? Uh, you said, is it Dr. Halligan? Yep. Dr. Halligan. She's Halligan. A, please forgive she's me. She's an addiction specialist and yeah. she's now working to help people. Um, she de-prescri- helps doctors deprescribe safely. Yeah. So you're going through that process and mm-hmm. then, um, and then you found yourself, even with the guidance of an expert in, in safe tapering, okay. that the result of being on that medication for so long was an injury to your central nervous system that created a whole host of symptoms. That's right. Yeah. I, um, so I guess I would just quickly say, I want to just make sure to be clear that yeah. I was off the Lamictal at yeah. this point that, you know, that I was put on and then taken off. There were a lot of drugs. I was, they were always looking for the cocktail, you know, try this, try that. But finally, when I got with Dr. Halligan, she's like, we're not adding anything. We're just taking off. So mm-hmm. when I got off of this drug, I, there was a little bit of a confusion in there. And mm-hmm. even she acknowledges this, you know, this was not like it is now where there's better information. There was just a void of information. And Mm -hmm. so she was out of the country. She went to, Mm -hmm. you know, she's entitled to her vacations too. And um, she didn't leave. I was really close to the end of my cutting my mean, where I just couldn't cut it any lower reliably. Mm -hmm. And in her head, the next step was that I was going to have to do a water titration or a liquid titration Mm -hmm. where I would then have to go to like a an apothecary and continue to go lower and lower until I was at 0.00 micrograms. And, mm-hmm. But I wasn't there. And so I had tapered down as low as I could with cutting. Um, and I had crossed over from clonopin to Valium and then cut down even further. So I was mm-hmm. like, you know, if you really want to feel like a drug addict, you know, you just sit there and cut your right. drug every day. Right. So um, so anyway, I'd gotten down to as low as I possibly could. And my instructions on my yellow legal pad that she had left me kind of ended there. And, um, because she always allowed me to control my taper at my speed, I kind of, you know, went maybe a little bit ahead of schedule or whatever. And she was out of, out of the country. And so the pad ended and I was like, Woohoo! I'm done victory. I'm, I'm off this stuff. 
And um, what I didn't realize it was that she had wanted me to go a little bit further. Well, mm. Ken, the thing about Valium is it's long lasting. It stays in your system for a good while. Mm-hmm. And about 10 days after my last dose, I started to really not feel well. I got an, what my ex-husband thought was like an ocular migraine. I felt that dizziness come on. I had some nausea and like flu-like symptoms. I actually got another urinary tract infection. Um, I, I started to have this weird nerve pain that was tingling. I got that feeling of bugs crawling up and down my arms and the insomnia. I couldn't mm-hmm. sleep. And so finally, one morning I got, came downstairs and I, or came upstairs, I guess. And I guess I came downstairs and I, my husband was banging around in the kitchen, getting ready for work. And I said to him, something's not right. Something is not right. And I looked outside and everything was like the difference between a regular green color and a fluorescent, you know, if you're in the club, you know, like everything looked really pumped up. And so it was fluorescent green and it was, it was August. And so it it was a very bright day. And I was just like, it's too bright. I need to close the blinds. And it was loud. Like he was banging, um, shutting, opening and closing drawers. And I was like, Oh, this is bad. And in that moment, I'll never forget it that sound of a thermostat kind of clicking like old fashioned thermostat when it clicks on, I heard three clicks, click, click, click. And the next thing I knew was I was down on the ground. And what I now understand is that I had a seizure Mm. and I was my, my, now my then husband sort of accused me of being dramatic and he said, I'll see you later. And he went to work, which that's a whole other discussion there. But he just really thought I was, I was being melodramatic. He just mm-hmm. couldn't imagine someone. I've always been sort of the together one and strong. And I just think he couldn't even imagine that I would go down like that, you know, that yeah. it, it couldn't have been real. He just couldn't process it. So I stayed there. And then when he came home at the end of the day, he escorted me upstairs and put me into bed and I was shaking and I was drooling and I had wet myself. I mean, I was there all day Um, and it was bad. Benzodiazepine withdrawal, it will just withdrawing from any like SSRIs or SNRIs or any type of psych med medication. I mean, it can be can very serious. And especially with the benzodiazepine, I mean, you know, because you were on it for so long, I mean, the seizures is, is like, this is super dangerous yeah. and, and, and it can happen. And you, and what you're talking about with this hypersensitivity to, 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 to it sound is. and light. Oh, that, that happened for me too. We're going to make the focus about you, but I'm shaking my head. Yeah. The listeners can't see that I'm shaking my head that, you know, all of a sudden you're having really big symptoms that you didn't have during while on the medication or before the medication. And right. you can feel like you are crazy. And this is an injury to your central nervous yeah, system. Yeah, for sure. It really is. I mean, it, there's no question. So I ended up um, staying and my, you know, my then husband was tried to he tried to take care of me as best I could. He didn't take me to a doctor ever. He basically kept me, you know, we st- I stayed in that bed thinking that I would, I guess maybe he was thinking I was sick and I would just get better, you know, after a few days, but it wasn't, I wasn't getting better. And one day I crawled over to the telephone and I called my parents and I just said, 
can you please get me? And the scariest thing, and Michelle, I didn't even put this in the book the way it really happened because I didn't know how to explain this in a way that would do it justice. When I called my parents, in my mind, I was asking for help. In my mind, I was saying, could you please come here and get me because I'm not okay. My father says I made no sense. Mm. He said he knew it was me because of caller ID. He knew it was me because of my voice. He said I was not speaking in sentences. It was like tongues or or gibberish. And he knew like a stroke, right? Like I was having a stroke. So something was obviously way off with my brain chemistry. And he and my mother hopped in the car. They live about an hour and a half away and they came to get me and he knew the code to our keypad to get into the garage. He came upstairs. I have always been somebody who cares about her appearance, not obsessively so, but you know, I'm someone who showers, takes care of my hair, dresses nicely. You know, I was a teacher. I, I, I like to look nice. You know, I was not, I had a hydrophobia. I couldn't get in the shower because the water felt like it was pins and needles. And so I hadn't showered and I hadn't been eating and I lost a lot of weight, weight very quickly. And so when my father came to get me, I'll never forget. He looked at me and I could just see the horror in his face. I just didn't look like his girl. And so he, I had spent a little bit of time while they were, while I knew they were on their way to just gather a few items together, a couple things, threw them into a laundry basket. And he carried me out of the house. He carried me in his arms down the stairs into the car where I laid in the back seat. And then he got my little plastic basket of things and I left everything behind. I mean, I had my purse, I had some yoga pants, pair of sneakers and a toothbrush. And I was like, I got, I need help. And then they drove me back to Syracuse, New York. And I stayed with them for, for about three or four weeks. Um, And they just did not know what to do with me. You know, they, they tried so hard, but this is a really serious thing. It's like, it's like I had a stroke, you know, yeah. and, and, and I'm not getting better. It's not like a cold, you know, it's, I mean, I, it's, it's literally like a, a, a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. And many, is. many, many of the symptoms that, that you would see in a traumatic brain injury on top of like a whole cascade of other symptoms that have to do with how the central nervous system um, manages like the sensory experience, yes, you yes. Have all these cognitive, like, yes. you know, it could be memory issues or like even all of it. attending to a conversation, just feeling overwhelmed all the time. You're talking about insomnia and then yeah, there's all these tactile, all yes. these tactile and sensory issues. And it can be different from for, for everybody, but not everybody experiences depersonalization and derealization and paranoia, oh. but I did many people yeah. do. And so you're just kind of going, what the heck is going on? So I know for, for you that this went on for months before. Oh, yeah. That went on for you. It went on for years, actually. That was years, but yes, at this period it was months. Yes. Yeah, so for the listeners, you have to buy this book. It is like, <laughs> it was a page turner. Like I couldn't stop reading it. Ugh. And I, and I still owe you a review on Amazon, which I will do after this, this, Yay. this, this, this podcast, but I want to say, so, because I really want to get to the highlights of this. Yeah. Thanks so much for tuning into the Real Joy Recovery Podcast. I hope you're enjoying this episode with Renee. Our conversation continues with part two, and you will not want to miss how her story unfolds. You can dive back into our conversation right now by downloading 
part two, healing with heart. Thank you so much for tuning into the Real Joy Recovery Podcast. Nothing lights me up more than hearing how you've recovered from the pain of your past to reclaim your joy. So let's connect. You can find me at Michelle Waterman Coaching on Instagram and feel free to DM me. Join me and our growing community at www.realjoyrecovery.com. It's time to build a trauma-wise toolkit knowing you have the power to regenerate your mind, body, spirit, and reimagine a whole new life. Be well. Be well.